All right, Genesis chapter 23. And Sarah was 107 and 20 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, the same as Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burial place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre, but that thou mayest bury thy dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. And he communed with them, saying, If it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he hath, which is in the end of his field, for as much money as it is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a burial place amongst you. And Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, Nay, my lord, hear me, the field give I thee, and the cave that is therein, I give it thee, in the presence of the sons of my people, give I it thee, bury thy dead. And Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. And he spake unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me, I will give thee money for the field, take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, My lord, hearken unto me, the land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron, and Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver, which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, four hundred shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. And the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field that were in all the borders round about, were made sure unto Abraham for a possession in the presence of the children of Heth before all that went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a burial place by the sons of Heth. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have the Word of God, that we might look therein and appreciate the gospel, appreciate what things thou hast done to possess a people unto thyself. We pray thee, Lord, that you would give us the Holy Ghost, that we might appreciate the spiritual truths that are therein. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I had a title for this sermon, and it is Trafficked No More. Trafficked No More. Um, 
One of the hymns we sang this morning was, This is My Father's World. And I want us to appreciate that this, in fact, is our Father's world, even though Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and he's the um, God of this world, which worketh in the children of disobedience. But without a doubt, everything is subordinate to the sovereignty of God. And so what's taking place here is we're going to see that uh, as we move forward here that Abraham has been promised the land and yet he's going to purchase a portion of it. Just like, of course, this world belongs to the Lord and everything belongs, everything in it belongs to him and yet he's going to purchase some things out of this world. So I'm going to start by having us consider what is written in Psalm 40, verse 7, where the Lord is speaking and he says that, Lo, I come... In the volume of the book, it is written of me. Psalm 40, verse 7 is a wonderful verse in the Old Testament that tells us that Christ is everywhere in the Scripture, that he comes in the volume, the, um, the completeness of the Holy Scriptures. Everything in there is speaking about him. When Jesus uh, arrives on the scene in the Gospel of John, and he's speaking to the uh, Pharisees, I believe, he says to them, "'Search the Scripture, for in them you think ye have eternal life.'" and they are they which testify of me. So he's really um, quoting um, or paraphrasing Psalm 40, verse 7 here. He's telling them that, you know what, I'm the one that came in the volume of the Scripture. Everything in here is speaking about me. Then he goes on to say, and you would not come to me that you might have life. Everything in the Scriptures is speaking of me. Everything is pointing to Christ, the work that he has done, the things that he has done to secure people unto himself. There he is standing right in front of them, and they won't acknowledge him for who he is. Um, As... As the saints of God, we should appreciate that it is uh, by virtue of the Holy Spirit working in us that we might understand who Christ is and what things he has done. He has illuminated us by his Spirit that we might know him. In, in uh, Proverbs 25, 2, we read, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. It is glory of God to conceal a thing. Christ was concealed from the world. He was in the world, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Christ himself is the um, the greatest thing that ever happened on this planet, and yet he was concealed. People did not know who he was. Uh, Isaiah 53 speaks about that, is that there would be nothing about him that we would esteem him, that we would desire him, that we would look at him and go, oh, that's the Messiah. So he says here, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a manner. So I'm sharing with you what it says in Psalm 40, verse 7, what the Lord says is that everything in this Bible is talking about Christ, and we are kings and queens and priests in Christ, uh, so we are kings before God, and it is our honor to be able to search out Christ in the Scriptures. And setting that before us, um, if I fall flat on my face this morning, I want you to realize that Genesis 23 is all about Christ. That's what I'm trying to tell you. So if, uh, if I fail to communicate that, then uh, get on your knees and ask the Lord to reveal that uh, to you. So here we have this interesting section where um, Abraham is in a land that has been promised to him. And you might think that Abraham might purchase a place to live here. But he doesn't purchase a place to live here. As a matter of fact, I can't find anywhere in Scripture that Abraham actually buys anything except for a place to bury. He's purchasing a burial place. He's not purchasing a place to dwell. And so um, that is the way we should think of this earth respecting our sales, uh, respecting us. This earth is really a, a big burial ground. It's a place where we are going to be buried too. We are pilgrims and strangers upon this land. Um, 
2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. So we go out into this world. Um, our future inheritance, of course, is the cosmos. It's the, um, it's the heavenly, the new heaven and the new earth. But we live lightly on this earth. We are strangers and pilgrims here. But this is where we are going to be buried. So we take care of what the Lord has given us. We are told that we need to be good stewards of what things the Lord has given us. And we understand that he has given them to us to use properly and to use for his glory. If we don't do that, then he'll take our possessions away from us. And that is a principle that we see all throughout the Old Testament. He gives the land to the Israelites uh, conditionally. And he says if they don't obey him, then he'll take them off of it. And that's what he does. He takes them off of it because they did not uh, obey him. So again, this earth is not our home. It's rather a representative or a representation of what we shall receive in our inheritance with Christ. It represents the new heavens and the new earth. And we know that Romans 4 uh, speaks about that with respect to the promise that was given unto Abraham. It says that he was promised the cosmos, not just this little postage stamp piece of land over there in Palestine, but he was rather promised the cosmos, the new heavens and the new earth. And so we think to ourselves, well, Abraham is going to bury Sarah. Why doesn't he do what we see done in the cowboy movies where the person dies and they pile a bunch of rocks on them, you know, and they put a, a cross at the head of them and they're out of their sight. And so, and then off they go. Why doesn't he do it that way? Um, we understand and can appreciate that Abraham uh, believes in the resurrection. He has just received his son Isaac back in type uh, from the dead. So he believes in the resurrection. And so what he's setting up before us here, at least superficially, is a good um, witness to um, those that are around him that he believes in the resurrection and so he wants to bury his wife in a place um, that would be above ground and that's how most of the sepulchers were in those days they were above ground because there was an anticipation uh, of the resurrection and so uh, when we consider what to do with our own dead well it's it's fine to cremate somebody god will reconstitute all of the pieces and and they will receive um, a uh, a glorified body uh, at the resurrection and um so we doesn't matter how you bury somebody. People have been eaten by fishes. They've been buried at sea. The many saints were uh, martyred, you know, and burned at the stake. It doesn't matter. But in terms of a witness and a testimony to your relatives, we prefer a, a person to be placed into a coffin and to be buried because we believe in the resurrection, that there'll be resurrection. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 26, um, speaks about Joseph himself, and Joseph was placed in a coffin, the scripture says, and he was involved, in other words, some, a, a process by which he would be preserved. You can think of that as receiving the Holy Ghost. Um, but he, all this was taking place according to uh, instructions, and he instructed the, uh, his brethren that uh, God would visit them and that they would take him up out of this place. So there was an expectation for him of the resurrection which took place when all of the Israelites were removed from the house of bondage. It's a picture of Christ being resurrected with the entire church. So this, this is always a, a, a major theme that we see throughout Scripture of the resurrection. Um, so in terms of this witness, uh, Abraham conducts himself honorably and with great humility. Um, he obviously loved his sister and his spouse. Those are one and the same. You'll recall that they had the same father, um, different mothers. And so um, they have been together for 127 years. They were only 10 years apart. He's 10 years older than, than his sister. And when things she came of age, why then he married her. So you can appreciate what a long life they have had together. And we can appreciate um, how heartbroken he must have been 
when she um, passed away. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, it says, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. There is a time to be born, and indeed there was a time for Sarah to be born and a time for Abraham to be born. In the context of Christianity, there's a time to be born again. And then it goes on and says, There is a time to die and a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. So in the context of a Christian, there's a time to go into the grave, and then there's going to be a time for the resurrection. In verse 4 it says, There is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And so for the Christian, we spend our time now uh, weeping and mourning, but there will come a time after the resurrection where we will both laugh and a time to dance for joy. So the Lord has set those before us here in the order of which the saint can expect to experience them. Weeping and mourning now as we go about, uh, walk through the valley of the shadow of death in this present evil world, but the time will come when we laugh and dance for joy in the presence of the Lord with glorified uh, bodies. And so Abraham weeps and mourns for his beloved wife, with whom he is one flesh with, but he does so not without hope, because he clearly believes in the resurrection. He knows that the day will come when he will be uh, with his wife again, but not as husband and wife, um, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we all shall be after the resurrection. Um, So as a mighty prince amongst the children of Heth, that's how he's described, Abraham is described in Genesis 23, as a mighty prince amongst the children of Heth, amongst the Canaanites, he bows twice in voluntary humility and does so very publicly uh, as he's going to make a purchased possession. The Bible is very clear here to tell us that this is done in the gates of the city and that before all of the people... He makes this. And all of these people are a witness of what is taking place here. He's going to purchase the field. He's going to purchase the cave. He's going to purchase all of the trees in the field that were in the borders round about. And I appreciate that, um, like any title deed, it says everything that he has bought with it. The field, the cave, all the trees in the field uh, that were in the borders round about. And the purchased possession, it is said, was made sure in the presence of the children of Heth before all that went in at the gate of this city. And what takes place in the gates of cities, as we've talked about in the past, that's where business transactions were made of this type, and also that is where judgment is rendered. So the elders of the city are there, and this is all taking place in the presence of the people that go in at the gate of the city. Now, In verse 4, it tells us that he is a stranger and a sojourner with them. And so we appreciate this description that is set before us, that he is a stranger and a sojourner, and he wants to bury his dead out of his sight. Well, like I said, why not just bury her under a pile of rocks? But he wants to bury her out of his sight. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23 The Lord sets before us a simple truth here about the land. He says, "All the land is mine. The land is mine, for ye are strangers and sojourners with me. So the Lord describes himself as a stranger and a sojourner in the context that he is leading us through this land. His people are strangers and sojourners um, with the Lord. In uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 1, the the letter is addressed to strangers. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered about 
throughout Pancha, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace be multiplied. So clearly, all Christians are strangers and sojourners led by the Lord um, through this land. Um, And he owns everything. So already we're beginning to see an interesting parallel take place in terms of Abraham and Christ and sojourning and the children of Heth here, that he's amongst these, these Canaanites. Um, in verse 6, um, he's described as a mighty prince, and he's standing amongst the Canaanites, and he would purchase a place to bury his dead out of his sight. Now, as strangers and pilgrims on this earth... In Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, we are told to set our affections on things above and not things on this earth. We set our affections on things above, not on things of this earth. And then in verse 3 of Colossians chapter 3, it says, For ye are dead, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And this should set us a blueprint for what is taking place here. Sarah is dead, and she's going to be hid and buried out of his sight. We are dead, and our life is hid with Christ in God. Abraham, representing Christ here, is going to be buried also in the cave with his wife. Christ and his bride are going to be hid. Um, Who is going to be buried in this cave? Well, I answered the question partially. Abraham is buried with Sarah, his wife. Isaac is buried with Rebekah, his wife. And Jacob is buried there with Leah, his wife. All three of those at various points in their life represent Christ, and all three of the women at various points represent the church. They represent the saints, either individually or corporately. And also we should appreciate with respect to Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, as all of them are in the line of Christ. So there ought not to be no, any question in our mind that these people represent um, the church. You recall maybe a month or so ago, I talked about how when certain individuals were buried, it says they were gathered up unto their people. Esau, when he died, he was gathered up unto his people, which is different than where Isaac uh, and um, Jacob and Abraham were buried. They were buried and gathered up with their people. It's always about separation. God is setting apart his people. He sets us apart by placing us in Christ, burying us with Christ, hiding us in God. So we see this uh, representative language here. There's quite a bit of it in here. And again, we see that Abraham humbles himself to make the purchase possession sure. We see that he bows himself twice before the um, Canaanites, before the people of the land. Um, By making the possession sure, there is no question amongst anybody who owns the cave. Now, um, I hope you can see this um, concept or see the the parallel about the cave being made sure, the purchased possession being made sure. You recall that when Christ went into his sepulcher, they made that sepulchral sure, when by the Roman authority it was sealed so that everybody knew this is where Jesus was buried and that nobody had the authority to open it. It was made sure by the Roman authority. In verse 16, we see that the money is weighed out to Ephron, who's the son of Zohar. 
Now, interestingly enough, Ephron means he of dust. He of dust. And Zohar means whitening. Uh, when you put the two together, whitening and dust, you can appreciate that he is a whited sepulcher. He's a whited sepulcher. And Matthew chapter 23 Verse 27, the Lord is speaking, and he helps us draw this relationship here. In Matthew 23, 27, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. So this is the amount of, this is the kind of people that um, Abraham is standing amongst, and quite frankly, it represents all of us. We are all of dust. The Lord says that um, because of sin uh, to Adam, of dust thou art, and dust thou shalt return. And we, our throats are open. Uh, Romans chapter three, I think it's verse eleven. Our, our throats are like an open sepulchre. You know, so we are before we the Lord quickens us. We are uh, full of dead men's bones. Now all the children of Heth are there, and Heth means terror. Heth means terror. So these people fear death, and that's what Hebrews chapter two verse fourteen says that all men are in bondage to fear of death. And you can see that as you uh, go about the earth. That's why you have so many um, elderly health care facilities and why there's so much money to be made in the healthcare industry. As people get older, they cling tenaciously to life because they're afraid to die. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. So people have this idea um, buried deep in their consciousness about facing judgment after death, and so they're afraid to die. A certain uh, relative of mine just texted me a day or two ago about his father, who's in his 90s, and um, he and his brother have made the observation that their father is clinging tenaciously to life. They both um, have made the observation that he is afraid to die. And I haven't told them why he is, but I know why he is. He's afraid to die because he's afraid of the judgment, and that's the way all people are. They are afraid to die, although they might... um, deny that to you and say, well, I'm ready to go and, you know, I've made peace. But the truth is, deep down, they are afraid to die because they are afraid of judgment. So that's the people that he's around here. Heth means terror. Now, Canaanite means traffickers. Canaanite, the Canaanites means traffickers. Um, And so um, we have this, the Lord is painting a picture for us in terms of the names of what all of these things here, but it is from amongst this group of people that he's going to purchase the field and bury his dead in the cave of Machpelah. Um, and Machpelah means uh, he, brought, he brought low the set apart. He brought low the set apart. And so that would include certainly all of the saints. All of the saints have been brought low um, through death, but yet they are set apart unto God. And so we are placed in the cave of Machpelah, which in this context represents being buried with Christ. Um, And this cave of Machpelah, it says it is before Mamre, which which means the causing of fatness, the causing of fatness. Uh, And that later becomes the city of Hebron, which means communion. Uh, All of this is in the land of the Canaanites are traffickers. So I hope you can appreciate that you and I as saints are in a very hostile place The world would seek to own us, would seek to traffic us, and yet we have been set apart by God. We have been buried in Christ, uh, and being there, that's the cause of fatness or enriching or fullness of life. 
uh, and communion, which becomes communion with with the Lord. So the Lord is setting the gospel out here before us by virtue of the names of these geographic locations and by virtue of what the uh, names of these people means. And so we see in verse 20 that all of this was made sure by the sons of Heth, again, those that fear death, uh, was made sure by them. Now, recall that it was evil people, it was people that feared death were the ones that crucified Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says that wicked hands, he was taken by wicked hands, crucified and slain. And then it was wicked hands also, uh, people that feared death, that sealed the tomb in which the Lord was, was buried. And so uh, we should appreciate, as the church, we are the purchased possession of Christ which he paid for with his own blood, and we were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, we, the saints, are also his field, and we are his garden. He is the gardener. That's how he, who Mary thinks he is upon the resurrection. Uh, the, it says that his sepulcher was in a garden, and she supposes him to be the gardener when she asks him what happened to Jesus. So he is the gardener. We are the uh, garden. In uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, it says that we are his husbandry, which means that we are the works, we are the, um, the plants among whom the husbandman works. And uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 9 again says, ye are God's husbandry. We belong to God. We are his husbandry. And in John 15, 1, Jesus speaking of his father, he says, my father is the husbandman. So we hope we can appreciate all of this. You know, the scriptures will sometimes refer to us as sheep. And maybe that's a bit of a condensation for us, uh, pridefully so, that we would not be thought of as people, but be represented by dumb sheep in the scripture. But it actually goes lower than that. We are plants, too. (laughs) And we are the fruit of his vine, and he would pluck us, and he would plant us, and he would graft us, and he would prune us any way that he chooses. Um, And we're going to see that um, as we look at Song of Solomon, chapter 4. So I'm going to go turn to Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 4. with respect to this, let me, before I go there, I want to develop this idea that we are his, his plants. Um, the scripture says that also we are his trees. It refers to people as trees, and you'll see that also in the Gospels. But in, the, in Psalm number one, the first three verses, it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and light. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now, we know this speaks of Christ because he's represented by the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, but it also includes the saints, too. The Lord has planted us, you know, um, he talks about that in Psalm 23, about he is a shepherd leads us about and make us to lie down by green pastures, by still waters. So we are the trees um, of the Lord. And Isaiah 55, verse 12, and Isaiah 55, 12, he's speaking of the saints, um, I'll pick it up in verse 11, and he says, uh, verse 10, I'm sorry, pick it up in verse 10. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word, speaking of the gospel, be that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. 
For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you in singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Obviously, he's referring to us as trees with respect to receiving the joy of the gospel, which is um, one planteth, you know, as it says in uh, 1 Corinthians, one watereth, and the Lord maketh it uh, to grow. And so the Lord does. So he likens us unto trees here that are clapping our hands. In Isaiah 61, the first three uh, verses, it speaks of that um, again here. Okay. And the first few verses says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the Lord quotes this directly when he's preaching to the people in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praises, praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So again, we see this relationship where the Lord is referring to us as trees that he has planted and that will rejoice in what things the Lord hath done for us. So in Song of Solomon, I'll go to chapter 4, and you can see this kind of language where he'll take you directly from his spouse and his wife to the, um, um, the fruits, the things that are planted in his garden. Um, there we read in verse 12, A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, Sarah was Abraham's sister and was his spouse. He's telling you that that individual is a garden enclosed. Think of it like a field with borders. He specifically says that he purchased everything in the field and the borders, right up to the borders. Um, Shut up is a, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Christ himself is the living water. He himself is the spring. He himself is the well of life. And he says in John chapter 4, that um, verse 14, that if we drink of that water, then out of our belly shall flow rivers of living water. And so he's still speaking about, um, the Lord is speaking about his bride here, his, his sister and his spouse. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor and spikenard. We are his plants. We've talked about that. We are his husbandry. Verse 14, spikenard and saffron and calmus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloes, with all the chief spices. Now, we're going to go look at Revelation 18 in a minute, and I want you to see the relationship between those two in terms of what is being trafficked or what was trafficked in Revelation 18. A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Verse 16, Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden, that would be Christ, and eat his pleasant fruits. In terms of the fragrance coming forth from a garden, I think you can appreciate that when you take a rose and and smell it, it smells very good. If you take it and you agitate it, why, it's going to smell a little bit better. It's a little bit stronger smell. So the Lord um, might send some difficulties our way, 
which send forth our fragrance into the world by which he himself would get, um, would get glory. So in here is a description of his field, the things that are in the field, the beauty of it, the fragrance of it, and that how he delights in it. Now, if we go to Revelation chapter 18, I'll read verses 11 through 13 again, and you can appreciate what the traffickers or merchants are doing to the, the, the saints. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones, all of these things will represent the saints in various places in the scripture, and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thine wood and all manner vessels. You know, we have this glory in earthen vessels, the Lord says in 1 Corinthians 5, um, chapter verse 7, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it talks about having the glory of God revealed in us, and he says, and we have this treasure in earthen vessels, and vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon. That was a direct reference to um, Song of Solomon there, and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. So clearly what's not being trafficked here are just in a superficial sense. You know, uh, people engage in all sorts of activities where they buy and sell things. But what's being trafficked here, what is being sought after are the souls of men. That's what's endeavoring to be trafficked here. By way of example, in terms of what um, we see in our lives is the trafficking or the marketing of us when we try to buy something. If you're on Facebook, of course, Facebook, I hope you can appreciate initially on years ago, it's nothing but an um, information mining enterprise whereby they're pulling information from you which they can market. How many times have you gone to the store, you want to buy something, and they want your phone number? I'm like, what does that have to do with, you know, buying, um, you know, a box of nails? Uh, they want your phone number and, uh, or they'll want your email address, so they're always trying to get something from you which uh, they can market. Facebook, Google, and Amazon are famous for it, and we've talked about it in the past. You have a conversation with somebody on the phone, and they're pulling information from that conversation by which they will market you. Um, with respect to the saints, in Second Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, it talks about how the um, um, false Christians would creep into the church to endeavor to um, make merchandise of us. And verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 of Second Peter, it says, But there were false prophets also among the people, back in the Old Testament, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who, shall privily, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. They will come into the church, they will endeavor to... Um, lead you away captive by their false doctrines and take you away. And through covetousness, a desire to have you, shall they with feigned or false words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. The Lord obviously takes a very dim view of people that do that, that would come and make merchandise of you, and he will judge them. Just as we read in Revelation 18, where he talks about how he has made um, and avenged us upon them, and when it says give double unto the things that they have done, what he means by that is they will be recompensed exactly as they have done evil. It's a one-for-one exchange. The Lord is just, and he uses a balance of equal weights. 
and he will uh, judge them according to what they have done. Um, and in Revelation 18, we saw again how we are told to come out of her, come out of Babylon, get out of this worldly system, get out of the, you know, uh, put the foolishness of this world aside, set your thoughts and affections on high and not on the things of this earth. Um, so uh, by what we've read in Song of Solomon, we appreciate that what Abraham as a type of Christ is, that's his field. He has, he has purchased this field and he has made it sure and he's done it in a very uh, public way. Uh, manner. So, as a type of Christ, we know that Christ purchased his field too. There are many places in Scripture that refer to God as the potter and we are the clay. And that is indeed what the Lord purchased with his blood because a price was apported out to him for the potter's field. In Isaiah 64 8, it says, But now, O Lord, thou art our Father, we are the clay. And thou, our potter, we are all the work of thy hand. So very clearly does the Bible tell us that we are clay and he is the uh, potter. So in Zechariah chapter 11, there's this prophecy about what will take place with respect to uh, Christ. In verse 12 and 13 of Zechariah 11, it says, And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Back in Genesis 23, it was the son of Heth who determined the price of 400 um, shekels of silver. Um, this is just a side note, but it's interesting how that silver has always been money. We have this foolish paper monetary system of currency, but money was silver. Verse 13, And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Well, what is the house of the Lord? Well, superficially, it's the temple. And that's what takes place in Matthew um, chapter 27, verses 5 through 7, where we read about what took place there when Judas, um, for 30 pieces of silver, betrayed the Lord. He went to give it to the, the priest because he started to feel guilty about it. And what did they do? They cast it. It, it was cast down in the, in the temple. Um, in verse 3 of Matthew 27, we read, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to it. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And he took counsel, and they took counsel, and brought with them, bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. We are strangers and pilgrims. The field was purchased to bury strangers in. That's what the potter's field in. We are the work of his clay. He's the potter. And verse 8 Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. And then it talks about the prophecy being fulfilled. In verse 10 it says, And gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. So we see this interesting parallel with what took place with respect to Christ, that for the price of himself was purchased the potter's field. Abraham, for 400 shekels of silver, purchases the field in which he will bury his people. He himself is buried there as well as uh, all of those that are um, um, in the line of Christ, all of the wives, the, the, the church. So 
Christ purchases his field, although he already owns everything anyway, um, and he does so for 30 pieces of uh, silver. Um, Now, um, I hope you can see the parallel that uh, takes place there in Genesis chapter 23, but I want to share with you there's one more layer deep we can go, and I'll just share that briefly with us. In verse 6 here, um, there's an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of Abraham in the context of purchasing a sepulcher or not withholding a sepulcher. In verse 6 of Genesis 23, it says, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchers, bury thy dead. In other words, you choose whichever one that you want. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulcher, but that thou mayest bury thy dead. Now, remember, I'd already made a case or shared with us that um, we are all sepulchers. And he's saying that none of us can withhold our sepulcher from you. You can bury your dead anywhere you'd like to. Well, where has Christ uh, buried himself? He's buried himself in all of his saints. The, um, um, through his death, burial, and resurrection, we are buried with him in baptism unto death. We are buried with him in, in to um, Um, We were crucified with him, buried with him, and resurrected with him. In John chapter 3, the Lord is speaking about um, being born again. And he says in verse 8 of John chapter 3, he says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannotst tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. God is telling us that the Holy Ghost is sovereign, And the Holy Ghost goes wherever it wants to go, and it goes into the hearts of the individuals that God has determined that it's going to go. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 37, there's this interesting discussion about the valley of dry bones. And I'll only pick up a portion of it, but you can see clearly from Ezekiel 37, verses 4 through 6, that what's in view here. It's talking about the rebirth, the regeneration of a particular individual. In verse 4... It says, and he, again he said unto me, prophesy unto these bones. These would be dead bones, bones that are dry. Bones that would be, let's say, inside a sepulcher, which is what you and I were. And say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. In other words, the gospel is preached. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. In other words, I'm going to blow the breath of life into you. The Holy Spirit goes wherever it wants to, and it's going to go inside them. And in verse 6, he says, And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skins, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So we see this other layer layer here in terms of these dead people. There There are sepulchers walking around just as we were until the Lord came unto us, and not one of us could withhold ourselves, withhold our our sepulcher from the Lord. And he would have whichever one that he wanted, which he purchased with his own life. So I'm going to close with that, and I pray that the Lord will impress these truths upon ourselves, that he has purchased us. We are his purchased possession, and our lives are hid with him in God, that he has hidden us from this world. You know, 1 John speaks about how that the world does not yet see us as we are, But they will when the Lord comes and we shall be like him um, because we are like him. Um, So he has sent this wonderful truth before us in this section here of Genesis 23. Um, I'll just, amen. Amen.